Welcome to What's Your Beef? Each week we will introduce you to people working in the beef industry and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic event that is Beef Australia. Hello, I'm Jane Cudahy and this is What's Your Beef? Today we're speaking to David McLean, Chair of RCS Australia, the resource consulting service based out of Rockhampton and Yapoon in central Queensland. Hi David. Hi Jane, how are you? Oh, I'm fine, thank you. Getting cooler, so that's always an exciting time of year. Um, David, you've got a long history in the beef industry. Let's start right at the very beginning. How did you first realise that beef is the greatest industry? <laughs> when you when you grow up in it, it uh, goes without saying, doesn't it? You just uh, you just know. Uh, for me, uh, so I'm a fifth generation of a, a cattle and, and sheep operation from southern Queensland, south of Mitchell, and uh, agriculture was just always the destiny. I, there were times when I didn't know exactly which part or how I was going to fit into agriculture, but it was always going to be in there. So it's it's just been natural calling. That's, uh, that's kept me on track over time. Great way to come into it. So what, um, when you said you were, grew up in southern Queensland and you've stayed in the beef industry, what are some of the roles that you had before you landed at RCS? The different places I've been. So one through school and then uh, when I went through uni, uh, I did a, an ag science degree through GATT and, and I tried whenever I could to, to go and work on different places. I just wanted to to experience the way that other people did things. And so I was always keen to, to spread my knowledge and, and see the different approaches that other people had. And so that took me to some really interesting places through Queensland and, and New South Wales. Uh, then I started my journey with RCS as a client uh, up at, uh, in North Queensland between Richmond and Croydon. And so that's, uh, that journey up there started to expose me to a different style of management again as every business is different and and so after spending a, a bit of time up there I, I i then started work with rcs in they got you in they roped you in and brought you into in. the <laughs> it uh, so no, it's been it's been fun uh, to to see the different one and that's one of the things i still really enjoy looking at is that that different approach that people have and there's just so many different ways to get to that outcome of beef production and their own, their own take on it I always find really interesting. Well, we'll come to a few of those um, ideas in more detail soon, but let's, before we get too far down the track, what is RCS? I think, you know, quite a lot of people are familiar with it. If you've been to one of the various um, schools or courses that RCS run, you'd be all over it. But just what is RCS? I think in a nutshell, the easiest way to explain it is we're a private extension company. So we provide... Um, education programs ranging from a, a, a one-day course or online training right through to an intensive whole of business seven-day program uh, called Grazing for Profit or, or Farming and Grazing for Profit. So the education component is one part of what we do. Uh, the the advisory work is another key component of what we do, working one-on-one -on -one with businesses and companies, uh, looking at how to, how to make their businesses hum and how to achieve the, the objectives that they're chasing. And then the 
the third component is primarily around professional development and that's the ongoing upskilling and building confidence in our clients through uh, coaching programs and executive development programs such as Executive Link. Okay, and Terry McCosker has been such a leading hand with, with RCS since the dawn of time and I think, you know, his name is quite... Um, synonymous with RCS, but just looking at your webpage, you know, there are so many people and you've got such a huge staff now. What? How has it evolved over the last 30 years? Yeah, it's about uh, 35 years now. So yep. the mid-80s, RCS started up up in the Territory. And uh, how has it evolved? Like any business, it, it, it goes through its cycles. And uh, so I've been here you know, for 13 years now. And have seen a few of those cycles. And if you look at that staff lift, one one thing that I always find really exciting, and when we get together as a, as a team at, at some of our events, when we're lucky enough to all get together, uh, what I love seeing is that for a majority of our team, and pretty well for all of our delivery team, we all started as clients. And so we've all been on the other side of the table. So you've you all got lived experience, way. which I think makes it. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the people you see on the staff list there are, are still still active clients and still running their own properties and doing what they do. And I think that makes us pretty unique and it makes me really proud to look at the people that we have, that it is firsthand and it is lived and the, the things that we teach and the things that we talk to clients about, um, they've all implemented that and eventually we, we've got a lot of clients that come to us and say, look, I, I want to give back, I want to help somebody else have the experience that I've had, how, how can I get involved? We want to speak about regenerative beef production and, you know, that's something that's quite close to your heart. But just speaking briefly before, you said that it's becoming a bit misused in the way that we speak about agriculture. Can you just expand on that a bit first? Yeah, sure. It You don't have to look far at the moment to see everyone talking about regenerative ag and regenerative farming, uh, whether that be in media or social media. The and I, I think as a term, it's a brilliant term, and we've been using it for for a long time now to describe what we feel is important. And if we take the the philosophy that if we're not regenerating, we're effectively degenerating uh, what's around us. And where I first really clicked on to to the the word regeneration was you know, you would have heard a lot of over a lot of time people have talked about oh we need to be sustainable. And, you know, I look at the health of a lot of country and I look at the health of a lot of businesses and the health of a lot of people. And I think to myself, well, sustaining that status quo is to sustaining where things are at at the moment. Actually, that's not a great outcome. Uh, we need to improve circumstances. And so I think from a um, the, having a word that matches what we're trying to achieve, it's perfect. What I'm really seeing, because it's becoming more popular and one way of looking at it's a bit more sexy now, is that as a result of that, it's getting really heavily bastardised and misused and everyone's starting to put use regenerative agriculture as a uh, as a title or as a thing. And are you, are you saying that like, you know, people on social media promoting their businesses as regenerative or is this a consumer idea that they're demanding more regenerative and that way their understanding of the concept is getting... Where are you seeing the real mismanagement of it I, I think it's at both ends and uh, I think it's I actually think it's really exciting at a consumer level uh, that they're starting to ask questions about is this food being produced regeneratively and 
uh, is this good nutrient-dense food, food for me to eat? I, I think that's a really exciting next step that we're, we're heading towards. Uh, and I think it's really good to see beef producers identifying as being regenerative. Uh, again, I, I feel that's that's really exciting. And if we look at our beef production, we really we, we can't do any beef production unless we've got uh, good grass production. And so we, we need to learn to love our grass as much as we love our cows. And in that context, if we're going to be effective grass producers, then we need to have healthy landscapes and we need to be profitable. And if I, if I just digress for a moment, the, the definition that I use for regenerative agriculture is where we've got, we, we, with us, yes, we use the analogy of a three-legged pot, where the, the three legs of the pot um, are made up of our land management, are made up of our production management. So obviously, specific to this, we'll be talking about our beef production management and then our business management. And then up in the pot, being supported by those three areas is the people and the people management. So my definition of, of regenerative agriculture is a balanced three-legged pot where we have healthy land management, we have healthy production, beef production, we have healthy business management, healthy businesses, and we've got happy, healthy and content people. And so to have beef producers excited about having that balance and focused on the health of the people and the health of the business and the health of the landscape as much as they are as about the health of their animals. That's exciting. That's that's what really motivates me and what we do as a company. Where it's been misused more and more is that, and the one that really uh, upsets me is to see people saying, oh, if you're using any inputs, you're not regenerative. Or if you're doing this, you're not regenerative and you're not regenerative unless you do this. And all that does is creates a divide. Uh, and I don't think we're so fortunate to be in business where we are in Australia, where we've got so many choices available in terms of the tools that we've got um, available to for us to produce beef. And which ones are the right right tools to use or which are the right inputs to use? Well, that just varies. And so to say, oh, if you're doing this, then you're not regenerative is just starting to get a bit ideological and not actually looking at it from a, um, a balanced land, beef, money, business point of view. Even if you're talking about, you know, Australian agricultural or beef production, the landscape itself is so varied right across the nation that surely that every sub-area is going to be completely different. Absolutely. And there's certain times where different things need to be used. Okay, so in an ideal world, I'm assuming people who are coming to RCS and, and doing these courses and talking about regenerative beef have the open minds or the the foresight to to look at doing different things or do, doing things better within their own businesses. In an ideal world, if everyone who is producing beef in Australia were hoping to do things differently, how could you see that working? What can beef how can beef production be regenerative? On a broad scale, you know, I, I come back to a statement I made before. We need to learn to love our grass as much as we love our cows, and I think that's that's a pretty critical one. We, uh, my observation is that sometimes we we let our passion for our animals uh, become more important than our passion for our landscape. And you know, I don't, I don't, I would, I'd say I've never worked with anybody who isn't passionate about their property and what they do. Mm. Um, do we, there's so much pride 
in the industry and it's exciting. But I still see, you know, when you're driving around, you can see, you know, one end of the scale, you know, there's the producers that are still wondering why we're talking about stocking rates. It feels like something that we conquered, um, you know, years ago. But then you still see the other end where properties run out of grass every year, depending, you know, how much or little rain they have. So how do you find that not everyone is, is looking at their pastures as much as I guess you would like. So how, how are you breaking through or how do we break through to the, that end? Yeah, um, a, a couple of key thoughts there. One is that we've got to stop trying to chase the unicorn. And that's the, uh, the story that I use around average rainfall. Uh, to me, average rainfall is a unicorn. And you know, when whilst we're looking at country and saying that this, you know, most of central Queensland people would say that's a beast of 10 acres. Uh, whilst you're looking at country saying it's a beast of 10 acres, we're completely ignoring the fact that we need a certain amount of rain to do that. And uh, this year has been another example where not everyone's had that. And so we need to change that attitude from this country or our country having a a set ability to run a number of animals. The reality is we live in a very variable landscape and the number of animals in reality needs to be adjusted with the seasons Uh, and, and start to challenge ourselves culturally as an industry um, away from some of the language or when things get back to normal i uh, uh anyone who's worked with me know I, I challenge that one pretty hard that then they stay back to normal well what's normal the variability is normal so i i feel like that's that's one one thing that needs to shift another thing i'm really passionate about shifting is the association made between production and profit now all, all too often and i think this is pretty uh, deeply rooted in the industry we believe if we produce more we'll be more profitable and that's that's just not accurate uh, productivity is one of the drivers of profit but it's not the driver of profit and so getting high production at very high cost doesn't actually leave you with a margin and so it's a but unfortunately most of our ego is Mm -hmm. Um, is is attached to productivity. We want to talk about how big our wiener is or what we got paid for something, but we won't talk about cost of production at the pub. We'll only talk about weights. The third point I'd have back to how we shift that is that as an industry, we need to stop talking about it as a collective. And some of the agri-political bodies, I think this is important for them, and they talk about we as an industry, um, as a collective, uh, whether I'd say that we are doing a good job, you know, particularly when it comes to um, discussing with external parties and groups, they say, "I oh, know, as an industry, we're doing a fantastic job. So we are the, we're clean and green, and we do that." And I, I disagree with that. I, as you said, there are many, many, many people in the industry that are doing a fantastic job. Mm. And then there's that portion of the beef industry that actually should be in jail. So one size definitely does not fit. Absolutely. And whilst we talk about it collectively and just say, as an industry, we're doing a good job, we're never going to change that bit where we're actually going to hold account uh, some of those people that are really changing the reputation. And I think moving forward, our our social licence to operate is important for us to consider. So how do we change that then? Because I I completely can see where that frustration, well, I'd share that frustration if I'm (laughs) blunt, but... It, you know, these groups do have to speak collectively when they're going in and, and, you know, batting for us. So what would you like to see? How would you like to see that language change? How do you call people out without, you know, getting, getting in trouble and having a few lawsuits? 
Yeah, obviously it's not not straightforward. Um, and if it was if it was a simple answer, it would have been done. Um, the I think the starting point is to not is to say how there is that separation, and to acknowledge that um, whilst there are many people and, and majority of people, it's the same as anything. You got the majority of people doing a good job, mm. uh, and then you got the ones that aren't, and they're the ones that are damaging the reputation and so own it and, basically own it, own, own it own it and say it's there and then actually start that conversation and it's okay as it this is where we can talk about as an industry as an industry how do we change this um what what support do those people need to help them to change um their approach and i think for so in some cases it may just be a lack of knowledge you know i i've never worked with somebody who has deliberately overstocked their country uh, it's just been not having the skills or the systems in place to help them to know how many animals need to be sold or moved to another property or what other actions. So sometimes it's a skills thing. So how do we address those skills? In other cases, it might be, well, uh, just not not ignoring it. And I think we've all seen cases, and unfortunately there's, there's way too many on major roads where we drive through and see cattle that are skin and bone and dying on dams. And when we need to reach a point, we say, no, actually, that's not acceptable. I don't want to be, I don't want that to be associated with my industry and and not just sweeping it under the rug. So it's a peer pressure too. Well, I think that's, that's the only way it can change, or... isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're having these conversations all the time, I guess, with these smaller groups in, in your the education forums that you have. Do you think people are coming around more? I guess, you know, it is hard because the people you do probably more see are coming around, but can you see the conversation shifting? I think it is. I think there's a lot more recognition now of land health and the importance of land health and water use efficiency so that if we manage our land better and have bigger, deeper, healthier root systems under our grasses, we grow more grass from the same 100 mils of rain than what we would if we didn't. So I think there is more recognition of that now. Okay. Soil health is a general topic that's that was barely talked about a couple of decades ago, and I think it's much more common now. It is, yeah, I think I think that's fair. So, what what happens if we can't change perception? The other side of that, from a perception and a consumer point of view, is we're we're really not doing a great job of telling a story. Uh, so, and this is an overused term that 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 very statement, but the reality is, I still don't think we're doing a great job. And storytelling, so you mean sto- telling yeah, our story? Yeah, storytelling and and sharing that story about um, land and land health and the connection between that of having healthy animals and some of the speaker we we were scheduled to have our uh, celebration of thirty years of grazing for profit in Australia this year. With the, every ten years we do an international conference, we had to postpone that one for next year. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of stuff on next year. I think there like, is. I there's know. So much it wasn't time. wasn't meant to be the same year as beef. Uh, no. That's just the way it's, it's working one out. One big party for you next year, David. It is. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> what the what I was going to say is that it's that connection between healthy soils, healthy plants, healthy animals, and healthy people. So it's a great story to tell. So why aren't we more proactive as an industry? I always feel like we're one step behind um, when something mm, big mm. happens. We come out when there's a disaster or the live export gets banned or, you know, when things are really tough. But why aren't we out there more telling our story and getting on the front foot and, and being a good news story? Yeah, it's interesting working in America 
and uh, and talking with uh, my counterparts over there, I was there last year. And it's just it, the difference in the culture is uh, to me. It's just it really stands out. Is that uh, I'd say a lot of people in in Australian ag and beef, they're they're just good good genuine people that get about doing what they do. They're not there for to uh, to brag or, or big note and. Mm. And so, um, whereas uh, uh, American industry um, are a lot more willing to stand up and tell their story, and, and much more, um, uh, they're, they're happy to get in front of a camera and talk. And I just find it's a bit harder here. So that's that's one of the things that needs to shift. So then maybe you should start running some, you know, um, social media forums or something, David, or getting people in front of cameras. You know, they may make put that into a grazing for profit as a, as a module. Yeah, we're, we're doing a lot more and um, having a lot of conversations with companies now about sharing the story. And so that's why I'm, I'm really happy with the progress that we've made as a company in the last 12 months to share some of our client stories. Mm. Uh, and I, I think in terms of what's going to change that, it's up to it's up to us, yes, and it's up to all the other individual companies involved in agriculture and beef to collect these stories and to tell them mm. and we just need to keep keep chipping away at it and, and learning the skills and, and using these forums that are available and making sure that there are some good stories and getting more numbers behind it and I look at that that if there's one thing I wish we could have changed as a company over the years was getting more records early on just so we could demonstrate some of the changes that people have seen on landscapes you and mean data Pictures. Absolutely, yep. yeah, and that's that's so much better now than it was even when I started. But, you know, being able to tell that story and have the data, and you know, everyone in agriculture knows that uh, if you've got healthy land, you can run more animals. And yet, uh, if we look at a consumer level, that's not necessarily clear. They'll say, "Hang on, no, you need to get rid of numbers. You're running too many." Um, and so we need that information to show that no, the the better we look after a country, the more animals we can run at higher levels of productivity. And having numbers to support that is what's going to help to change that story. Well, exactly. And I think you know the the whole concept of data, especially with you know the state government in Queensland and Ag Force and the debacle over data deletion um, recently. Mm-hmm. This conversation about data, people are automatically scared of it because they don't want people to have their information but at the same time you go to the bank for another loan or you're buying another property they want data they want they want you know your stocking rates and everything I can't you know there is that data is amazing with what you can do and achieve with it on so many levels absolutely I uh, I recently just spent a few weeks on the road helping people do feed budgets. It's that time of year, so we're going and doing feed budgets and, and looking at a forecast going forward. And and a few other places I, I went on to uh, just commented, oh, geez, you know, we, we sort of knew, and most people know, how they're feeling. They used, they've got their experience. Uh, but they're just so excited to be able to put some numbers behind that to have more confidence around how many numbers can I bring on or how many numbers do I need to reduce so that we're in a good position come the next growing season. Mm. And, you know, rainfall data is so easy to collect and everyone loves that, so it just seems the next logical step to start collecting yeah. pasture budgets. And that sort of thing. Except no one uses it. No. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the other thing. Then you collect the data and maybe that's where the problem lies is people are more daunted about 
analysing their data and using it yeah, more so than collecting it. And the, the language we use around that is there's a big difference between data and meaningful information. Yeah, okay, There's, there's a, a huge amount of data kept, which uh, is a waste of time because it's not being used to support decision-making. Mm. So we've got to, got to convert that. Yeah, rainfall records, they're the, they're the classic. Aren't they? Everyone's got them, but how many people actually use them to help uh, adjust numbers or use it to make better decisions? It's, it's really not much more than pub talk in a lot of cases. Well, ideally, what would you like average Joe grazier to be collecting on an average beef property in Australia? What are the top, top data points that people should be looking top at? Top data points. Mm-hmm. What are they collecting? Uh, like I, just what we just said, rainfall is an important one. Uh, oh. And we, we look at rolling 12-month rainfall. How much rain have you had in the last 12 months at the end of any month? Mm-hmm. And I, that's much more meaningful than, like, you know, take it. We, we're here now in mid-2020. Uh, the amount of rain that you had for the 2019 calendar year is nowhere as use nowhere near as useful as looking at how much rain and you've had this in this last 12 months, up until um, you know the end of May or into June 2020. I think that's one. Um, I think one thing might might in working across different sectors, one thing that we can definitely improve in the beef industry is having a bit more confidence in how many cattle we've actually got. Um, now, that might sound pretty simple, but um, it, it still does amaze me how many businesses when I start working with them don't really know <laughs> what numbers they have. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be exact. In a lot of country, you, you can't be exact. But I just look at if we were, get, if we were to go and get two, two helicopters and put them into that paddock, what do you think we're going to get? And let's just start with that. And so getting a bit more confidence on your stock numbers and if the next lot of numbers that, I'd say would be a big game changer for a lot of businesses to start recording their yield that they're getting out of their grazing paddocks, which uh, really you, you need to have a handle on your stock numbers and and need them to bring them back to um, LSU or DC or adult equivalents, whatever mm-hmm. animal units you're working with. And, but if we were to start to record that, then we can start making better decisions and we can have a look at um, are we eating more feed than we've actually produced or what's our forecast marries back with the others very well yeah it does and it's you know, if we're going to come back to the that age-old saying i don't know who to attribute it to i've always attributed it to peter drucker uh that you can't manage what you don't measure yep and if we go back to the the conversation earlier around well, first and foremost we're grass producers mm. and then we turn that grass into beef yep. and if we're not effectively measuring uh, the uh, the grass that we're able to utilise or what we're eating or what we've planned to eat, then how do we know if it's right or wrong? We, we leave a bit too much to chance. Well, look, I think that's a great takeaway point for that. So, David, you know, we've just coming through what is COVID and the financial viability of many industries is what everyone's talking about, though agriculture and in particular the beef industry looks fairly... Um, fairly secure for the time being, you guys do a lot on profit, profit management and, you know, the financial security of businesses. How do you think we're situated? I think that's a, that's a twofold answer. Uh, what, uh, what our benchmarking and analysis shows through Profit Probe is fairly consistently the, the top 20% of businesses have been able to achieve pretty reasonable 
results and comparative across different industries and that's been fairly consistently right through. What's been really interesting for me is that with this huge variation we've seen in prices received uh, since it would it be 2014 um, that prices really took off is that we haven't seen a commensurate change in returns. Um, if anything over the last couple of years we've actually seen returns uh, comparatively lower than where they were at a return on assets level. And cost of production's definitely increased for a number of different reasons. And so the comment that I'd make is that just because prices have been high, don't assume that profits have been equally as high. Uh, the data that we've been seeing doesn't indicate that at all. I think there's potential for it to be higher. Um, one, one thought I've had going back and pouring through a few decades worth of benchmarks recently is that the the level of profitability now is pretty similar to what it was 10 years ago and and yet the price received is nearly double well if you take this last week or two it's that's definitely telling more than my goodness that's a dramatic figure and well the, i'll tell you the, the working theory i'm working on from that is it's not actually a business thing it's a it's a um it's an attitudinal reason and and I look at um, I look at my family. My my parents managed to educate three boys through boarding school and had, had an enormous sacrifice, and how they made that happen. And we see this in businesses all the time. When it, when you need to make something happen, you'll always find money to do it. And I, I'm just wondering whether there's enough genuine drive for profitability there. Okay. So is the is the lack of profitability because uh, we've got a lot of people in the industry that are just happy getting by. If they can just keep chugging along and and just perform reasonably well, then that meets their goals. And do you that marries with the attitudes of people that you speak to and, and see? Not necessarily, no. We work with, with such a range of people. We've got some some clients that are very focused on profit and they've got really clear targets and when they get very clear on what they're trying to ask the business to achieve, and we do work through a process of working back from their goals to what profit they need to achieve to be able to afford those goals, uh, then quite often they can achieve that. Where, and then we've got other, other clients that um, you know, profit isn't as high objective. They're, they're at that stage of life where it may not be, they don't need to be in the top 20% and don't want to. I'm a bit fascinated with that one at the moment as to, okay, with all things that are going on, uh, specifically, what is the reason that profitability hasn't really shifted in ten years? And I, all I can come back to is it's a it's a management decision. And so people are going on holidays more; they're spending a bit more than they may have. Like I think, is it what you're saying? You know, the focus was to get the kids educated. Let's you know make some money, and you know they were quite tough years. Now people are more relaxed. I don't believe it's necessarily that there's more holidays and anything like that. I mean, cost of production is high. Input costs are definitely high. Yep. Uh, right across the board. So that, that's a that's a huge component of of that reason. Um, and and price received isn't a direct driver of profit. Our data's shown that year in year out. Just because you get paid more doesn't mean you make more. It's just the same as if you produce more doesn't mean you make more. It's that it's that difference between the value of what you produced and what you cost you to produce that. Uh, that kg of beef essentially that determines your profitability so i think 
is it that it does it all come back to not having a clear enough profit objective and most businesses when i ask that question well what's your profit target how much do you need the business to make for you um most people don't have one <laughs> they give you a blank a blank look but then i guess that comes back into what we're talking about with data too and is there a correlation then between people who are collecting data and have got their you know budgets and forage budgets and yields and all of that sort of thing are they driven a bit more to get a bit more profit out of their business or is there yeah absolutely yeah yeah and sometimes because they've got more debt they need to yeah uh, and it's a bit more empowering then for driving yeah absolutely absolutely i do think part of the reason also would come back to what we're saying before around the waiting for the unicorn that people wait for things to get back to normal. There is no normal. And, and there, there is no normal. And whilst we're waiting for that, we're, we're really losing out profitability-wise. Mm, our focus. Uh, and so you might, you might have a couple of four years, but we'll, we'll say, oh, that's because of the, the, well, the seasons. And if we, in my opinion, we look at the last couple of years there. Um, really, if you've got animals dying in the paddock, you, you surely couldn't be waiting for prices to get better. Uh, that if you've got an animal that's in um, decent condition or, or even strong, uh, that the prices have been best that anyone's ever seen. So it's all linked together. Yes, it is. Going back to our regenerative com- conversation, is there profit in being regenerative? Is that how you get people in? It is, yeah, and that's an interesting one. There's been some some different things in the media over the last twelve months. Thereabouts saying that. Uh, Regenerative producers are leaving X number of hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table. Uh, my response to that is, well, uh, have you gone and asked the producers? And so I look at my clients that have been implementing what I consider to be good regenerative practices for um, for years and years and years and years, and, uh, and ask them, so have you lost money doing this? And they're always going to say, well, no, I would have stopped doing it if I was losing money. Uh, so it, it is, and if we just come back to that three-legged pot analogy again, um, the, the, the healthier we've got our land, the more grass we grow off the same amount of rain, which allows us to be more productive with our beef and more efficient. And so if we're not regenerative, if we're not improving our landscapes, then we're actually not in a position where we're going to be having a business that's here in the future. Our, our, Input costs are going to continue to increase, so we need to keep finding a way to be uh, more efficient with what we produce off our country now. So it's my experience, and that experience is based on the analysis I do with a number of clients, is that it is absolutely profitable to be regenerative. And if we're going to have a business that's going to be here for our kids, 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 kids we, we don't have any choice if we leave our country in worse condition than when we found it. Uh, well, then these businesses might be here in the future. Do you think that the beef industry has to work a little bit harder to get that message through when you consider the media but also a lot of reporting against the greenhouse emissions of cattle? Yes. So how do we, how do we tackle that one then? How do we – because that comes back to messaging and we've spoken about that and, and telling our story – but how do we really break through and use facts and figures? And, and sorry, there's another little bit I want to add in here too. Do we get too emotive? Do we need to get 
you know, there's that real romanticism about cattle grazing and the Australian mm. grazier and big hats and, you know, long days. But do we really need to just be a bit more factual with our messaging? Uh, yeah, I think we need a bit of balance. That the emotion is why we do it. So we can't, nor should we take the emotion out because that's what that's what triggers the passion for why we all work in the industry. Mm. Uh, however, yes, we absolutely need some more facts to back up the information, and which comes back to the conversation around data. Mm. Uh, if if we don't have data to go with the messaging, to go with the storytelling, then less people are going to take notice of it, and. I think more and more now we live in an age where people are sort of are saying uh, that makes sense, but show me the research, show me the numbers behind it. Mm. And that applies for everything uh, from carbon sequestration right through to return on investment for what you spend on a property to methane emissions. But there just aren't enough numbers. And uh, I, some, there are some really exciting projects on the go at the moment. And I, you know, every year we're getting more information and we're getting more research and more people interested in looking into these areas. So I'm quite confident that it's coming, but um, at the same token, it's good for people to say, well, what more could be done? How else do we get that information? Now, David, we are here to talk about Beef Australia, the event. You live in Yapoon, so, you know, I feel like <laughs> it's just a party that comes to town every three years. What you, what's your favourite part of Beef Australia? Uh, people. Yeah. Uh, uh, hands down. I, I just love that uh, clients and people that I know from right around Australia and, and internationally uh, are all on our back door. And so I, I try to deliberately not, schedule much or book into much at beef and uh, I just love getting there and and taking two hours to walk 30 meters <laughs> because you just keep on running into people so the the networking opportunity and the ability to to catch up with people and and the the opportunity for business as well it, it's it's great to get face to face and talk talk business briefly with people and mm. and catch up and be a bit like going home home to your hometown for a week or so. That's right. <laughs> it is. I just love the fact that you just you, you really I can't move. It's just the same thing. You just got so many people that you run into. So another thing that I've been asking um, people who have been guests on our podcast, we're here to you know to champion beef. Beef is delicious. I want to know what you cook at home on your average week weekday meal i don't want to show off dinner party i want you know think of a wednesday night what are you what are you cooking at home what's your favorite uh oh, my favorite is t-bone uh, <laughs> i'm gonna have to start that. doing a tally on this <laughs> I really, right. yeah second favorite uh, then the i mean honestly for most of the time i'm, I'm really just happy steak and veg so <laughs> steak on the barbecue Veg and the barbecue. Uh, my, uh, my wife's got much more creativity and and desire for variation in in what we eat than I do. Left to me, yeah, but it's yeah, steak and veg on the bar. So steak. Do you have sauce with your steak, or is it salt only? Uh, salt, salt and pepper. That's it. Yep. Good. Good. You can come for dinner then. That's fine. Um, <laughs> I'm glad I passed that test. Yeah. Oh, you should be. Okay. Well, look, David. I feel like we could be here for much longer. 
than we are. But um, I feel our time has, has come to the end. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me and uh, looking forward to the big event next year. Hopefully it all goes ahead. Oh, it will. It will in, <laughs> in, in, in many sh- shapes and, and forms, I'm sure. Thanks so much, David. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.